of a clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman gonna flood you big river and I'm gonna sit right here until I die I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport and I followed you big river when it called Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in each episode I read uh, about 100 pages of the works of American writers using the Library of America as my source material. And I am um, jumping into a series here on Mark Twain. So if you're just joining us, this is um, uh, I do this podcast in long series and, and that's where I'm at now. I'm looking at Mark Twain, I'll be looking at him for the better part of a year or more, depending on how long it takes. But uh, we're starting with the Mississippi writings. We did Tom Sawyer, and now we're, we're deep into Life on the Mississippi, which was published in 1883. A few years before the adventure of Huckleberry Finn, which he was writing off and on while uh, this book was being conceived. Now, I don't know, there's a lot to love in Life on the Mississippi, it seems. I, I think it's really... Uh, a great look at the, that the labor history, at the work, at the knowledge of the working class. I think this is a great example of the work uh, or of the manager's brains being under the workman's cap here. It's like just how much knowledge it took to be a pilot. That's really what you're hit with in the early part of this of this narrative is just, you know, what a specialized profession it was, how difficult it was, how much training it took skill it took how much was on the line every time the pilot made a decision um and it, this is really good on that so it also gets us a really good window and probably the best we're ever going to get of samuel clemens's youth uh, as a steamboat pilot uh, and he even says at one point like this kind of book's never been written before no one's ever really talked about these pilots who are like central to the lifeblood of america in the antebellum period the mississippi in the decades before the Civil War was the central artery of the United States and it would continue to be until the railroads came in, which is a theme we'll get to, I think, a little bit later on in our in this series, maybe in the next episode or, or, or maybe a little bit here too. You know, just the transformation of, of America from being a river-based, a canal-based kind of uh, economy to one based on railroads. More continental, less... Less maritime, less Atlantic-focused, and more continental-focused. Um, where really the West is going to be the theme, and we'll, we'll get to those stories, I'm, just, I'm, I'm sure, um, pretty soon in this series as well, when we read, like, Roughing It, which is another early, a memoir of his early part of his life, but picking up uh, after the Civil War, more or less. I think that book also talks about his Civil War experiences. So you have that. Then the second part, which we're going to get into here, it's really the second two-thirds of the book, it transforms itself from being a memoir uh, of, of being a riverboat or steamboat pilot to being a travelogue. And this isn't the first travelogue he had written by this point. Uh, I'm not sure when roughly it was written. I think that might predate this. But Innocence Abroad certainly did. So this might be his third travelogue, not to mention other travel writings he did in shorter form. So I think it's Innocence Abroad, then Roughing It, then Life on the Mississippi, and then Around the Equator, and, and also later life travelogues. So that's a big part of his work, is, is writing about travel. And that was a popular genre in the 19th century. 
it was one of the most common uh, genres. He even jokes about it here in this book at some point uh, where he says like, oh, anyone who like takes a travel somewhere comes back and writes a book about it and gets it published. It's just really common. If I studied like the China trade uh, back when I was a graduate student and early in my career as a historian and yeah, it was like almost everyone who went to China wrote a book about it and had their own point of view. And that's valuable information, but it also gets kind of obnoxious after a while. It's just anybody who traveled wrote that down. Sailors didn't write as much, of course, but, but people of the middle class who went abroad loved to write about their experiences because people love to read about them. And so there was a market for this kind of stuff. It was a popular genre in this age of imperialism. We need to connect this to the emerging global economy of the 19th century, the emerging world system. And the and the just the opening up of the world through the steamships, railroads, the growing tourist industry, and the connecting it all through empire, the European empires, which opened up this world to these tourists who could come in and and see parts of the world they couldn't they've only read about in books prior to that. But of course, many people who couldn't even afford those could always still read these books. And so it was really popular and, and a lot of people read this kind of stuff. So this kind of fits into that genre, especially in the second two thirds of the book. Um, and then you have like Mark Twain kind of being the comedic writer telling his tall tales and, and these exaggerated stories of things that happened to him or things, the stories he heard. And a lot of this seems to me to be kind of fictionalized. Now the question is, does this all come together at all? I'm not convinced it does. I, I understand why like more people, of course, read his novels than read this stuff. Um, and I kind of get the attraction of Innocence Abroad from what I remember of that book. But this one, I don't know. It's I don't know if it's great. I, I think I, I tend to like what I what I read by by Mark Twain. This one is a bit of a slog in that. I mean, it doesn't seem to come together. There doesn't seem to be the major theme outside of the fact that the river is the central alley of America and full of interesting people and interesting stories. Um, and that seems to be as far as it goes. But uh, so what can I say? Um, well, it's in a way this story becomes, when it shifts to being a travel log, starts to really be a history of the transportation revolution in the United States. And in that sense, it, it is compelling uh, as a historical source, the changing nature of transportation and how it shaped one profession, right? Because when he was growing up, these were powerful people. These were central people, right? Um, and as global capitalism went moved on with the... Particularly with the with the railroads, this went away, and and the, the, this became more sideline. It became more tourism. What he was actually kind of engaged in. If we think of the decline of the longshoremen in our own age with containerization, we we get an example of how transportation workers who are moving the commodities that make the world economy, how their professions and careers can be challenged by new technologies. So, you know, we, we see in this in this part the erosion like what we was well, first let's let's talk about the the rest of his narrative about being a pilot um that's probably why a lot of people might want to read this book is because they're they're interested in what it took to become a steamboat pilot what were their lives and adventures and the deep knowledge of the mississippi river that they that they must have had um 
you know, and of course he was idealizing these heroes. He writes, boy after boy managed to get on the river. The minister's sons became the engineer. The doctors and the postmaster's sons became mud clerks. The wholesale liquor dealer's son became a barkeeper on the boat. Pilot was the greatest position of all. So this position had glory. Um, and all boys where he was from, Missouri, dreamed of these careers on the river. And then becoming a pilot changes how he saw the river. It went from being like mythical and beautiful and endless to something a little more mundane, right? Pilots uh, had to know the river locally, know the minutiae, right? And they couldn't look at it any longer with beauty. And he says this explicitly. He says, no, the romance and beauty were all gone from the river. All the value any feeling of it had for me was the amount of usefulness it could furnish towards compassing a safe piloting of a steamboat. Since those days, I pity doctors from my heart. What does the lovely flush in a beauty's cheek mean to a doctor but a break that has rippled through some deadly disease, through above some deadly disease? Are not all our visible charms sown thick with what are to him the signs and symptoms of hidden decay? Does he ever see beauty at all? Or doesn't he simply view her professionally and comment upon her unwholesome condition all to herself? So that's that's kind of at the end of the part I, I, I talked about, you know, I was talking about in the last episode, but I didn't, I didn't really mention this. Um, and, I, and I think this is true probably of many professions. It's, it's how sometimes I feel about history, to be honest. But that's uh, that's a different conversation. So this lost aside, though, there's really is a lot we can learn about being a steamboat pilot from this book. I, I can't think of a better place you would go to learn just what it took to be to become a pilot. Um, most of the first half contains these details just of the craft of being a pilot. Um, and I suppose every technological change required workers to to learn those new skills. And I'm just once again saying like we really got to have more respect for just the skill of work. As mundane and horrible work as work can be, you know, I don't know how you can read this and not come away with like a labor theory of value, I suppose. Um, now, we don't see like, as we saw with Melville, like the brutality, the arbitrary authority, the hierarchies of like the merchant ship or the or whaling ships or things like that. Instead, we get a much more egalitarian space among the, the steamboat workers, even though there's kind of class differences. There's rank in the piloting and things like that. Um, he writes, in truth, every man and woman and child has a master and worried and frets and servitude. But in the day I wrote of, the Mississippi pilot had none. The captain could stand upon the hurried decks in the pomp of the very brief authority and give over him five or six orders while the vessel backed into the stream and then the skipper's reign was over. End quote. So ultimately he's saying there the pilot was necessary because of his knowledge and the captain didn't have that knowledge. The captain had to defer to the pilot. And when the pilot gave orders, it often led to catastrophe. The captains depended on the skill of the workers. Knowledge of a craft is empowering. And he has two chapters on this. One is the rank and dignity of piloting, where he talks about how they go to New Orleans. And while other people have, are involved with unloading the steamships and, and doing that kind of work, the pilots got to basically be a celebrity around town. And, and they had a bigger salary. They got $250 a month, which is like nine or $10,000 in, in current money. So they're making... They're making six digit, six, uh, yeah, six digit incomes, which I assume most of the workers on the steamboat weren't, but that's just a reminder of how important they were. I don't know about the captains, how much they made. But he also has a chapter on the pilot's monopoly, which is a little more tongue in cheek about this, where uh, 
you know, pilot wages started to go down, so they tried to unionize, essentially. And he, he kind of makes fun of this because the union became, the people who joined the union were like the, like the worst pilots or the worst workers, and, and it was kind of exposed them. The people who joined the union, or the, the, the Steamboat Pilots Association or whatever, were, the, were basically admitting that they weren't that good, as they weren't the best, because the best of the best would, would still get their, their job. And it, and it kind of had the function of those people got blacklisted and, and wouldn't be hired. So it kind of was a failed union attempt, but it's still a symptom of of how how important and powerful these um, these uh, workers were to to running America. Um, now, historically, the path for when workers get too powerful in a craft, and it's that especially when it's based on their knowledge, is to de-skill that profession, right? De-skilling jobs. So that could be true with railroad work or steam mills or, or pretty much any other job that required high skill, right? If you wanted to disempower the workers, it required de-skilling them. Um, but in a sense, what happened here is I don't know if any de-skilling, conscious de-skilling took place. It just got kind of passed over by, by the railroads. Um, so anyways, and, and what you have by the time he's coming back in the 1880s is the river is a tourist site. Um, but still, the main point here is he compares the knowledge of the local environment, of the river, you know, hundreds of miles of river that had to be known. Everything from like St. Louis down to New Orleans. I think St. Louis is maybe where things came from like the Great Lakes to first before it went down to um, New Orleans. They had to know like every inch of that. Um, and he compares it at one point with the knowledge of Bible, like of the, the knowledge that preachers had of the Bible. But the profession also required lots of time for conversing, drinking, smoking, flirting, watching diverse crews, watching diverse populations, watching, you know, encountering different people as they went down south. And a lot of the fun of the book, too, is exposing these, these people. Um, it's good stuff. It really is. I just don't know if it all comes together that well. Um, but... You know that the fact that there's a there's a tension here between work being a pleasure and work being drudgery is 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 brought home to us because Mark Twain loved the river. He clearly loves the river. Um, that, that seems indisputable. But he also talks about how it did become drudgery. Um, you know, I was attracted to Mark Twain's description of the craft of becoming a steamboat pilot. The resurrection of that of the idea that craft-based occupations could be part of the escape from the drudgery of work, right? That's, you know, that's in, it's, it's in, it's in people like Proudhon and, and Fourier, this idea, yeah, work sucks, but we all like to do stuff. So if we just can do the stuff we like and make that the base of our economy, we'll be better off, right? Um, but that drudgery is not ever totally avoidable. So maybe we still need to abolish work. I don't, you know, work. But maybe there's some hope. That's 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 kind of what you can kind of maybe get out of this. Um, but if we jump between these two time periods, like the eight, 1850s described in the early part of the book and then the 1880s described later, we are in a world of dramatic change. The cotton South has been defeated. Slavery in the Civil War has been defeated. The West has been pulled into global capitalism. We have the Gilded Age. And the future of the steamboat would be, as I said, tourism. 
the railroads would take on the heavy lifting of integrating the regions of the nation and integrating them into the world. And one of the first books I did in this whole podcast was Frank Norris's The Octopus, which does exactly that. It talks about the railroads as the new lifeblood of America. It could almost be a sequel to this book in some ways. Um, but, you know, when he comes back, the signs of the heavy historical burden of slavery and the cotton farming still exists. At one point, Twain calls these telltale signs of the absolute South, quote unquote, absolute South, quote, no modification, no compromise, no halfway measures. That's actually a little later in the book, but. Um, the countryside to Twain's eyes did not change much from the time of his youth in the Mississippi. Change, it, it's, it, it's an uneven development, right? So really some, some uh, useful stuff here, I think. To, to look at. Um, what else do we have here? Um, not much. I mean, there's fun little stories about like one of the funner parts in the section I, I read for this episode was how uh, Twain tries to be incognito on the steamboat, pretend he doesn't know anything about steamboats. And then he like lets go some knowledge about the river. And then the guy's like, you must have been a pilot in some base. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then he's like, why don't you take over the helm for a while? And you, you do it. So when he says his, he calls it like my incognito broken, it's not him as Mark Twain, the famous writer. It's, it's him as a as a former steamboat pilot. Now, maybe one of the more important chapters here um, is 27. Yeah, some imported articles, which is about tourism, the arrival of the tourists um, from abroad, from England. But but the as the the river becomes a site of tourism, these are these tours are going to come from all over. And he he gives a lot of press accounts of people who idealize and romanticize the the Mississippi, um, and he just quotes them at length. And it's all kind of repetitive. I think that's partially his point here, but it's 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 kind of can't. It's it's kind of a it's kind of myth making. And maybe like I guess part of me would like the more materialistic reading of this transformation. Like for that, I need a historian. I suppose not Mark Twain. Mark Twain is still torn between that romanticism, which you see in those press accounts, and what he remembers from his youth, and the mundane realities. I, I think that's an innocence abroad, too, and in his other, like, especially in that one, where, yeah, it's like, well, I'm in Egypt, but it's just, like, kind of bland. It's just kind of boring. It's just, like, it's all prepackaged experiences. That's what happens when you turn something into a tourist site. It's no longer an authentic experience. You could still say, oh, that's beautiful, but you know, you're not exploring it. You're not experiencing it in a real way. You're just experiencing what has been programmed by, by the bosses who profit from, from, from tourism. So I guess that's, that's all I can say at this point about this book. I, I still have to reread the second half. So I'll have two more episodes about this and it's going to be more of the same, I suppose. But I think I want to go back to my bread and butter, which is the more materialist reading. I, I don't want to be too distracted by, by the stories and the tall tales and the, and the humor of it all and really think about this book as a meditation 
and that, that's what I've been trying to do here uh, is, is today is to try to go back to thinking about labor and work and capitalism, which I always intended to do more of. But as this podcast just evolves, I, I just end up talking about works that I that I like to read and enjoy. But, you know, I, I wonder sometimes with this this podcast, especially as we're getting to, you know, into hundreds and hundreds of episodes, if I if I need to discipline myself to make it more meaningful for me to really do the historical and literary interpretations of the world we live in today. Because I used to do that a lot more. And I, I feel sometimes I'm not uh, doing that. I think it's still there in the backdrop of a lot of what I'm talking about, but it's not as, as conscious in my head. So I'm, yeah, I think I got to force myself to do that. I think I got to discipline my, my methodology, at least for works like this. Right. Um, but let's see. Let's see how I, if, if I can sustain this. So, um, yeah, uh, I kind of recommend this book uh, halfway through it um, on my second read through. But I can understand people wanting to skip it. It does. It does go on a bit. And some of the stories are a little if you like those stories, though, they're, they are fun. It's Mark Twain, obviously. But, you know, I was kind of drawn in by the by the labor stuff early on in the story in the, in the book. But anyways, let's, let's hang up for today and uh, you let me know what you think about this. And, and let me know if you think this podcast needs a little bit more of a, of a disciplined system, uh, systematic approach. Maybe I need to go back to that. And maybe Mark Twain will be a good uh, window into that. Um, we'll, we'll see. He, it is such a, he is such a central writer in the, in the American experience and he touches on so many aspects of it. So, um, yeah, next episode, we'll look at the, the, will be part three of my look at life on the Mississippi. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. She's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone. I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff. She raised a few eyebrows, and then she went on down low. Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River Queen?